Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Institute for Policy Innovation podcast. We're coming to you today from the studios of Salem Media Group in Dallas, Texas. I'm Tom Giovanetti, the president of the Institute for Policy Innovation. Today is February 1st, 2024, and I'm joined today by IPI's resident scholar, Dr. Merrill Matthews. Today, Dr. Matthews, we're going to talk about the East Palestine, Ohio derailment and the Railway Safety Act. And I think uh, President Biden is uh, highlighting that today, isn't he? He's, he's planned to go out there and point out some of the things they want to do. So this is part of why we're talking about it today is that February 3rd, 2023 was the date of the East Palestine derailment. And so we're coming up on the one-year anniversary. Mm-hmm. So the one-year anniversary is going to be then, I guess, um, Saturday. Um, and for those of you who may not recall, this was a major derailment uh, in this rural town in Ohio uh, by a Burlington Northern train carrying, as trains do, carrying lots and lots of various kinds of chemicals. Mm-hmm. It's a major derailment. Uh, deci- the decision was made that the safest thing to do is to let the material burn. And so for several days, you had these pictures on live TV of these, you know, this billowing black smoke coming up. Uh, interestingly enough, yes, you're right. The President Biden is traveling there today. Uh, interestingly enough, this is the first time President Biden's been there. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of sort of animus on the ground about why isn't the president coming, you know, and seeing for himself what's going on. It's interesting because there's not much a president can do. On the other hand, right. most of the time presidents do do that. They go to scenes of disaster or whatever if for nothing else but, you know, for photo the, ops. for the photo op and the opportunity to say, hey, we care and we, you know, we're aware and all this kind of and thing. And if they don't go, they get all kinds of criticism. Exactly. Because apparently you don't care if you don't go exactly. to these things, even if there's nothing you can really do. That's exactly right. So, so Biden did get lambasted for not coming until now. We're getting into a major campaign season now. Mm-hmm. And it really does seem like the Biden administration has shifted to a campaign footing. And so it's maybe not a big surprise that they've chosen to actually go and to use the occasion of the one-year anniversary of the derailment to try to do some politicking. And now you mentioned, let's let's do a little background here, because you mentioned a lot of chemicals and things like that. Mm -hmm. And there's really, for transferring very heavy things, long distances, uh, rail or pipelines are really your best option. Well, they're really kind of your only good options, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, we run into this a lot on this issue of pipelines for oil and natural gas and stuff, right? And you have environmentalists like opposing the creation of the pipelines. Well, the other alternatives is to haul it on trains or to haul it on trucks, both of which are actually more subject to problems than pipelines are. So yeah, pipelines are the safest way to, to carry that. But there's a lot of these chemicals you simply can't do in a in a pipeline. You can't do there's not enough chlorine gas in a pipeline. Right, and there's not enough. They're yeah. they're taking some, but with oil and natural gas, you're pumping hundreds of millions of barrels. Yeah. And so yeah. you 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 want to have what a train can do, and it, that trains do these very well. Exactly. A couple of months after the derailment, the Department of Transportation concluded its investigation in the derailment. And they found no evidence that the train crew had done anything wrong, no evidence that any crew on the ground had done anything wrong. The interesting thing about the investigation is it was never able to actually zoom in on a cause, but they did not find that like human error was the problem. Mm -hmm. So that leaves you with issues of just the fact that infrastructure needs constant maintenance and constant upgrading and sometimes 
tracks separate or get a little bit out of alignment, or sometimes there's some erosion of the of the bedding underneath the tracks or whatever. And these things happen, and they have to be continually maintained. Uh, but the fact that the DOT found that uh, there was no evidence of any essentially human error by the train crew did not stop politicians from immediately within just a couple of weeks mm-hmm. using this as an occasion to put the legislation forward that would, you know, quote unquote, um, prevent these kinds of derailments in the future, as if there's any kind of a law that could do that, right? Mm-hmm. Now, clearly, I mean, generally speaking, it is certainly possible for safety regulation to improve safety. If you have a situation where, where, where it's demonstrable that people are being harmed because there's not enough regulation, then there's certainly places, there's certainly room for safety regulation that can improve human safety. But you're never going to 100% eliminate uh, problems, mistakes, disasters, and things like that. And there's no amount of legislation that's going to do that. And, you know, people should realize that with their own car. You can get your checkups. You can have your oil changed. Mm-hmm. You can have all the filters and so forth changed. You can get the registration and have an inspection and so forth. But some things sometimes still go wrong. You, you could have uh, some types of failures just in materials or other things that nobody really foresaw. Mm-hmm. But you do have that, that those breakdowns at times. Exactly. Now, politically... In Ohio, you have two senators. You have Democrat Sherrod Brown, mm-hmm. uh, who's been there forever. And is running for re-election. Is running for re-election and is actually supposedly facing a pretty tight re-election mm-hmm. campaign because Ohio has, for the most part, become a red or red-leaning state. Right. Um, but Sherrod Brown is a very progressive left-leaning senator, very pro-union, always in favor of more government control, more government regulation. And so it was no real surprise to see that Senator Sherrod Brown was pushing forth legislation. Again, it was called the Railway Safety Act. And it was basically a wish list that the labor unions, that the various, there's about, I think there's 12 labor unions in the rail industry. And it's basically just the wish list that they have all had, like minimum crew sizes, um, you know, um, increases in pay, increases in benefits. Right. And this goes back to Rahm Emanuel's old slogan of don't let a crisis go to waste. Exactly. When something like this happens, it opens the door for them to be able to push through an awful lot of regulations that may or may not be needed, may may or may not have had the support in the past, but it gives them the opportunity. Exactly. You know, when you were talking, when we were talking a few minutes ago about this issue of human error, by the way, this is one of the arguments for like self-driving cars, mm-hmm. because most car accidents, not all, but most car accidents are caused by human error. But of course, we all see stories in the newspapers about the self-driving cars having accidents too, right? Mm-hmm. So um, the reason I bring that up is that the same kind of modernization and innovation that is happening in most other areas of the economy is happening in the rail industry. There's all sorts of technology now Automated, automated track monitoring and automate, automated signaling and things like that. Not autonomous trains, but computer-assisted trains and all this sort of stuff that can make decisions faster than humans can, that can detect problems faster than humans can. And so our trains today are safer, more modern, and require less human intervention than trains did 40 or 50 years ago. But all these things tend to have the effect of eliminating jobs or requiring fewer employees. And so one of the main concerns that the, that the rail labor unions have had is this idea of minimum crew sizes, mm-hmm. that you don't necessarily need a crew of five anymore to run a train. Very often you can get by with a crew of two or maybe three, but that eliminates a couple of union jobs and unions don't like that. 
So this Railway Safety Act essentially was chock full of those kinds of things, protection for union jobs, minimum cruise sizes, and things like that. Um, it also had a lot of provisions in it. If you require that a function has to be performed by a human member of a labor union, mm-hmm. what you're saying is this process cannot become automated, mm-hmm. right? You cannot use technology to do this. You have to use a human member of the labor union. So ironically, there were provisions in this Railway Safety Act that actually would prevent the implementation of some new safety technologies that might very well have been able to prevent the East Palestine derailment. Mm -hmm. Now, what's interesting, though, about this bill is while it was largely crafted by Senator Sherrod Brown, the pro-union Democrat senator from Ohio, the person who jumped out in front of it and who was on all the cable news shows talking about it and pushing it was Ohio's other senator, Republican J.D. Vance, Hmm. freshman senator. Now, Mm -hmm. what's interesting about this, of course, is that J.D. Vance is a Republican. For as long as you and I have been around, the general tenor of the Republican Party has been, we are not in the business of protecting union jobs against disruption by technology. We are not in the business of holding private companies hostile to, host, hostage to the demands of unions. Uh, we are not necessarily big fans of more and more and more government regulation. But there's J.D. Vance out there running point on this legislation mm-hmm. and wanting to take credit for it and wanting to push Republicans to support it. Now, that legislation, the Railway Safety Act, has not gained any traction whatsoever. Mm-hmm. It has not even come out of committee, much less gone to the floor. And the reason for that is that most Republicans don't support it. Mm-hmm. But J.D. Vance does. And so this gives us an opportunity to talk about the fact that this is yet another example of this new sort of turn on the center right and then the Republican Party toward populism. Mm-hmm. Okay, And one of the things about, about Republican populism is it looks an awful lot like Democrat progressivism. Yeah, populism generally looks an awful lot like each other, whether you're Mm -hmm. going to the far left or to the far right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, this is sort of the old, like, horseshoe theory that, like, the extremes of both ends actually end up meeting. Right. You know? Um, And so, you know, when you think about what what political coalition out there is constantly bashing private corporations and demanding more government regulation, that tends to be progressive Democrats. It tends to be the left. But what we're seeing now is some of these new populist Republicans doing exactly the same thing, Mm -hmm. bashing corporations, uh, blaming corporations for harm, uh, demanding more government regulation, and uh, courting the unions and saying, hey, you know, I, I you know, I, I want the Republican Party to be more of a workers party, more of a blue collar party. And so the way you do that is you bash employ, you bash corporations, you promote unions uh, and you position yourself as I'm the guy who's going to protect you from all the bad stuff, whether it is, you know, free market competition or whether it's, you know, your employer, your corporation. I'm the guy who's going to get behind the union demands and all that sort of thing. So it's it's a weird, new, and novel thing that's going on on the center right. But politically, this has been a perfect example of this phenomenon that uh, Republican populism, and I'm not going to call it conservative populism because right, it's not conservative, not. right? Um, but this right-leaning populism has more in common with Democrat progressivism 
than it does with traditional conservative free market approach to issues. And we need to say that a lot of this is led by Donald Trump, who was big on imp- uh, imposing tariffs on steel. Uh, there is now a, a company at, from Japan interested in buying U.S. steel. And I saw just just in the last day or two, uh, Trump stepped up and said, I will absolutely oppose that, mm-hmm. even though it might actually be a good deal for steel, American consumers, and actually the ability to be able to make a more affordable and better product here. Yeah, th- that's exactly right. I mean, it, it, it is definitely Trump's disruption of sort of the old Reagan consensus on the center right that has allowed some of these ideas like, you know, right-leaning populism to sort of gain some traction. And, you know, I think from a political standpoint, there are a lot of sort of Republicans who they care more about the Republican Party than they do really about principles. And they're saying, hey, this is the way the part this is the path for the party to grow is by, you know, appealing to, you know, non-college educated blue collar workers and things like that. And so how do you do that? You do that through populism. Now, you know, traditional free market conservatism has always believed that conservative free market policies are the best policies for workers that for non-college educated blue collar workers, that economic growth, uh, you know, a rising tide lifts all boats and the rich may be getting richer, but the low income folks are also making more money too. And so that's a good thing. So it's, it's important to point out that when you have like Republican senators like J.D. Vance pushing things like the Railway Safety Act, that is a dramatic departure from the sort of uh, Reaganite uh, free market consensus that the the best thing for workers is robust economic growth. Mm -hmm. And the way you have robust economic growth is you have as little regulation as needed, and you don't implement regulations that, for instance, like on the rail industry, that would require them to have minimum crew sizes of union employees that would require rail cars to be inspected by union certified personnel rather than using sort of automated laser scanning equipment and things like that, that are almost certainly more accurate mm-hmm. than a human being you looking at it with their own eyes or whatever. That's not the path toward economic growth. And so that's the kind of legislation. It may benefit a small number of union employees, but it's not it's not what's best for the economy. It's not what's best for, for infrastructure. I mean, we, we know that since the COVID era, we've been very aware of this idea of like the problems in our distribution networks, right? In, in our infrastructure, the problems that it turns out that it's it's not the easiest thing in the world to get necessary goods from one place to another promptly and on schedule. And so we, we want these supply chains to function as efficiently as possible. And rail is a key part of supply chains. So to, to say to the railway industry, we're going to use this derailment in Ohio a year ago as an excuse to basically even more highly regulate freight rail than we're already doing it, that's not a way to make our supply chains more robust. Which almost certainly adds to the cost. And, of course, the the ultimate vendors that have to uh, bring these products in have got to pass those higher costs on to consumers. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. To the people that are shipping goods over the rail. Mm-hmm. And a lot of those goods may be, may be raw materials for other products, but eventually... Consumers are going to pay for all of those costs. Eventually, all of those costs end up getting recouped in the prices of goods and services. Mm -hmm. And so consumers are going to end up having to cover that. So what's not surprising, to sort of wrap this up, what's not surprising is to see politicians using a crisis as an opportunity to come across as the savior 
right? And to come across as, you know, I'm working to make sure this never happens again. And, you know, if you'll only donate to my campaign and if you'll only support my legislation, this kind of thing will never happen again. It's not unusual to see politicians doing that. It's not unusual to see a Democrat pushing a bill that's highly regulatory and that is highly oriented toward protecting unions. Mm -hmm. What's weird is to see a Republican out front being (laughs) the biggest cheerleader for it. Now, as we said earlier, thankfully, the bill's gotten no traction or not very much traction. But on the other hand, when you come up to the one-year anniversary of the derailment, this weekend, this is going to be all over the news, and they will be trying to use this one-year anniversary as an opportunity to uh, get this bill moving again. So there's reasons why conservatives and free market types are opposed to the Railway Safety Act, and there's reasons why Democrats are pushing it. There's also reasons why populist right-wingers like J.D. Vance are also pushing it. But it's important for our listeners to know that uh, that's a form of populist opportunism. It's not anything consistent with conservative or free market principles. Well, we appreciate you joining us for this episode, and we would invite you to check out our website at IPI.org, where you can learn more about government regulation, where you can find actually several pieces about the Railway Safety Act, and where you can sign up if you'd like to receive notices of all of our new podcasts, new content, and upcoming events. If you've enjoyed this podcast, how about giving us a favorable review on iTunes or on your favorite podcast platform? You can also help sponsor these podcasts by becoming a member of IPI's Giving Society. Thank you for joining us, and we will see you next time.